Hello and welcome to Strange Stuff. My name is Andy. And uh, I'm Mark. Hello. Hi, Andy. I love the way you say, I'm ready, and then I sit here for like 10 minutes. <laughs> it's not 10 minutes, it's four minutes. I had to get a bottle of cider, and your camera's all wonky. I can see mainly ceiling. Oh, uh, um, there you go. There we go. Yeah. So you had so, an early finish today? Uh, well, in fact, I didn't do my exercise today, surprisingly. Oh, why is that? Because uh, it's been so hot the last few days, I thought I'd give it a miss today. And I was working out in the garden, sweating buckets. I was on a killing mission. A mission to kill as many Lupina as I could find. What's the Lupina when it's at home? It's those... Um, flowers that uh, have those tall stems of flowers that are everywhere on the embankments the side of roads and things uh and they are incredibly invasive so if you let them take over they will take over your garden and it's not they just uh, squeeze out other plants but uh they don't uh, support the right insects for the birds and things that supposedly live here so it's a bit of a disaster, really. Sounds a bit new age, but uh, it is quite serious, actually, especially here, because they literally grow like crazy. They're quite pretty, but it's just they take over, kill everything. So you've got to take them to the dump. You can't put them in a compost. You have to put them in a plastic bag and you put them in the uh, burning compost. Yeah. Yeah, well, I never realised how complicated buying wheels for your car was. <laughs> well, it's not that complicated, Andy. It does help if you know what size you want, though, I have to say. <laughs> so what was the size? Was I right? 20555R16s? I don't know. I didn't look. <laughs> I came home from work. I just, you know, I don't. When I get home from work, I don't think, oh, I must go and look at me wheels. <laughs> uh, I would certainly buy them sooner rather than later. The closer to the winter you get, the likely more expensive they are. You might find a few more available, but they certainly won't be cheaper. Yeah, well, I, I, I sort of figured they'd be about 16. So I just looked and there were only three things available on Blockit and none of them were suitable. What do you mean? 16... 16, 16 size. Yeah. yeah. But uh, that fellow who was advertising, he sorted both me and uh, Ulva. Well, where is in Cernos? Uh No, uh, Uplands Versby. Where's that? It's down by Stockholm, isn't it? Yeah. It's oh, yeah. a day's trip. Oh, yeah, but if he's got the right wheels and tyres at the right price. Yeah, but then you've got to add a thousand for your petrol. Well, yeah, but if it's... 8,000 cheaper than buying them up here. Well, I doubt it, because they can't be 20,000 up here. Well, it depends. that's what Kia charge, actually. 
not 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 twenty, but they they charge uh, fourteen if you go and just buy them. Anyway, it's up to you. I've given you enough guidance on size specifications and sources of them but you're pleased with it or you haven't used it since you bought it no it's been parked well i'm not driving this week to work and i'm not the sort of person who goes for a joyride you don't i would have you read the instruction book have you you seen how much it costs to start the engine (laughs) 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 i'm a minge bag when it comes to cars i tell you i fucking hate spending money at all on them uh, well, you're, petrol. well, you're lucky because uh, you certainly won't be spending that much money on petrol. Service is included in the lease. Well, you say that, but I don't know how I'm going to charge the fucking thing. You said at work. Yeah, but that's one way. No. You're at work how many hours? Well, no, but I, then I drive 40 kilometres home. Then it needs a charge. It's not 40 kilometres from Elvdalen to Vormus. It's, it's 20. No, no, no. It's 35 from the beginning of that road that you like to drive on. Is it? Yes. I thought it was 35 to Mora. 45. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yes, there is going to be... You're never going... Even if it's fully charged, you're never going to get there for free. I say free. On electric... There and back on only electricity. Also, I meant to ask you, yes. there is a read out there that says how many miles I can do in gallons and in f- petrol, petrol and battery. And how far I can go in battery. Yes. And driving from Mora to here, they both went down. Of course they do. Why? It's, it's the, uh, the one, the big number is both petrol and electricity and the other smaller number is only electricity and is there a mode i have to switch to no that's it that that is the information it gives you so it's total mileage you've got total range and electric but range. how do i know if i'm on my electricity or if i'm on my engine uh, because uh you've got a if you read the instructions uh there are three modes the instructions EV. obviously are in the bin i'm i'm a man no, know. that's what women do. Women throw away the instructions. <laughs> Three modes, electric vehicle, hybrid or automatic. And, and um, where's the mode switch? I can't remember precisely, <laughs> but I think you'll find it's a button next to the gear shift. It's an automatic. Yeah, the gear. well, there's still a gear stick, isn't there? <laughs> um, I'll have a look on saturday what you want to have is it on ev the whole time so that when it runs out of battery obviously it switches to the engine but you the ideal situation is when you get to work the battery is empty and you recharge it yeah that's not going to happen well i mean it will happen actually yeah you will be every day but it means it it only means that's going to happen one way of the trip I can't. Yeah, yeah. I can't charge it overnight here. No, no, no. But you don't. You don't need to. I mean, it, it knows when it's out of battery. Yeah, and it will switch I, yes, to the petrol engine. Yes, but what engine. I'm saying is, I would like to charge it overnight here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can do, of course. I'm sure you can. Can't you rig up something that gets your electricity out into the car park? Is there no space that you can get what? an extension cable out the? What, and run it across the road. No, but that's what I'm saying. Is there nothing on your side of the road? No. Because this, you've got an Utag in your shed, don't you? Yeah, but you can't drive onto my garden because there's a big ditch. Uh, what about the guest parking? 
that's still on the other side of the road. Oh, is it? I thought you could park on your side no, of the road. No, there's nothing on my side of the road. Uh, yeah. Or you could negotiate with, uh, what are the, what do they call, Mora Strand, to get electricity to the Multivermara. Highly unlikely. They should be supporting you. Yeah, they should Actually, be. My work should be supporting me, but I guarantee you they're going to cause a stink as well when they see me plug. Well, um, but anyway, I'm sure you'd be pleased. Oliver's over the moon with hers. Um, we'll see. Anyway, I'm going to take it to Carlster with me on Saturday, I've decided. Yes. Now, if I can find a charging place, like a yes. public one, they cost money. Do you have any idea how much they cost? Uh, no, but um, the problem is that yours doesn't... Uh, I don't think it's got a fast charge facility, so you've got to be parked there for, like, five hours, which never is never going to happen. Unless the... Ho- Are you staying the night? No, no, no. Oh, you're just going for a lunch? Yeah, and a little walk around a couple of stores. Uh, be there well, a couple of hours, anyway. Yeah, well, it all helps. I mean, it's not the same as your house electricity, but it's it's nothing. It's peanuts. For a couple of hours, maybe it would cost you 20 kroner. All right. Oh, that'd be, no, just to plug it in somewhere would be nice. Yeah. Uh, and don't lose your cable, obviously. No, I can see it. It's, why, I didn't realise it had a big bloody adapter halfway down it. Uh, yeah, a big box sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to lose that. So when you lock the car... The charger is locked into the socket, if you know what I mean. Oh, so he can't steal the cable. <laughs> that's the idea, anyway. Well, that's quite clever. Yeah. But uh, I think there is somewhere you can get an app that shows you exactly where all the charging stations are. Make that but, be mission um, for tomorrow. Yes. But, you know, it's a comfortable, easy-going car. And, in fact... Um, even if you use it in hybrid mode, so not EV, hybrid, you drive quite carefully. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if you get about 0.4 litres per meal as compared to... I don't know what you were getting in the Fiesta. No idea. Five or six. No idea. You've no idea? God dear, Andy. Got to get your act together with I these th- vehicles. I just put the square in once a month and drive until I need to put the square in again. Oh, well, that's probably quite a sensible attitude, actually, not to worry too much about it. Anyway, uh, enough about cars. They bore yes. me. Yes, yeah. And they give me a, a hernia, stress hernia, thinking about how much I have to spend on wheels and shit. Oh. What are we talking about? I don't know, but I did actually, I sort of overheard quite a disturbing conversation on the radio today. Really? It wasn't me, was it? No, it was relating to Boris Johnson that apparently he got caught getting a BJ off Carrie in his office, on a sofa in his office. What? Apparently so, yeah. Uh, This is when he was Foreign Secretary. And that's disturbing from a number of angles, the worst of which is obviously the image of Boris Johnson with his trousers down. And this is also while he was married to the other woman, I'm guessing. Oh, yes, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Seriously, who in their right mind would want to have sex with someone like Boris Johnson? Or, in fact, Carrie. Ah, well, that might explain. (laughs) I mean, it's a bit of John Major Edwina Curry situation going on there. (laughs) Sort of. They're both very grateful. But you're sort of. 
But I think this might have been around the same time that he was trying to get her uh, a senior position in uh, the foreign uh, office that was paying £100,000 a year. Or in the royal family, in fact, was the other option. What? Yeah, there was a, there was a position going within the royal family, like a senior... Secretary role, or something. A senior role at Buckhouse that he was also putting her forward for. I wonder how you. I wonder how you get a job like that. Oh yeah, suck Boris's cock. <laughs> it's is just beyond belief. I mean, if you put it in a comedy program about politics, you people would say, "No, sorry, that's just too much." That's too far. <laughs> that's too far. No one would believe it. But there it is in black and white. Talking so of things that people amusing. won't believe. Yes. How do you feel about time travel? We've had this one before. You can't have the same story again, Andy. People will remember. We haven't had time travel before. Uh, yes, we have. It was only a few weeks ago. No. Yes. And I'm the one with the memory problems. Well, I'm going to edit all this out. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just going yeah, to It's going to be check. funny if you come up with the same story again. No, we had the Montauk project, which was encompassed a bit of time travel right there you go yeah but that's not time travel in itself or in fact it's not time travel in per se it's a phenomenon known as time slip all right and what happens in a time slip is you can basically be walking down the road i don't know if you ever watched a tv series called goodnight sweetheart no premise was that the chap would walk down a certain road and halfway down the road he would suddenly be in wartime britain all right, is it? It sounds like an interesting concept for a programme. It was really good, and it was um, Rodders from Only Fools and Horses. All Rod, right. He was he was the main protagonist. and he, he, Blackhurst, and Blackhurst he ended up, or something. No. Name of the actor. Anyway, carry on. He ended up with a, a family in 1944 or whenever it was. And, ah, tricky. And he was bouncing backwards and forwards between present day and wartime Britain. It was, Sorry, kind, was, it was it kind of a black comedy. Good night, sweetheart. I'll check that out. Very, good very night. good. It was very, very good show. Sweetheart. That might be on uh, that thing I don't like watching. The television? No, uh, Amazon <laughs> Prime. Yeah. Anyway, I think we have covered a couple. I think we spoke about a couple of women. What? They're on October the 5th in 1789, Marie Antoinette was dressed in a casual low-cut dress with a wide-brimmed hat. A casual low-cut dress yeah, in 1789. Have you seen have you seen the bawdy ball gowns they wore in those days? Really? It was all cleavage. Excellent. Bring it back, that's what I say. Uh, I think I'll do the perv around here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so sorry, hang on a second. I've lost the thread of this conversation. Are we going to talk about time travel we're or are talk we about now talking time about slips. cake? Eat cake if you can't eat bread. We're talking. We're talking about time slips and the slips you wear under your low-cut ball gown in seventeen and eighty-nine. <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway, she's sat on a camp stool on the grassy terrace of her chateau, the Petit Trianon, in yes. Versailles, and she was perched there sketching some nearby trees, when her quiet repose was interrupted by a breathless page who brought news that an angry mob was on their way from Paris. Because this is, of course, the time of La Révolution. And there was an angry mob on its way from Paris. There absolutely was. 
Did she lose her head, Marie Antoinette? Well, she kind of lost her shit. <laughs> I think she was guillotined in she the was. end, wasn't she? But those were the events of the French Queen's last day at her beloved Trianon. Okay, yeah. And the beginning of the end for the French monarchy. Or at least, those are the details described by Charlotte-Anne Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain in their book, The Adventure. These two women claimed that when they toured the palace, the royal palace, in 1901, something extraordinary happened. They were transported back to the 18th century, where they glimpsed the Queen on what may have been the last happy day of her life. And sorry, when was this? When did they travel back from? What? 1901. Uh, the very what last, were we talking about? 1789? Yes. The so very 110 last, years. The very last days of Edwardian Britain, basically. All right, well, that's a fair old step, isn't it? That's more than a slip. That's like a bloody chasm. Well, That's a tumble and crash. It was a story that... Mobley and Jordan would tell for the rest of their days. Mobley was the well-respected daughter of the Bishop of Salisbury, also the first principal of St Hugh's College for Women in Oxford. Right. Jordan was slated to be her vice principal, and they went on this journey to get better acquainted. And I say that very loosely. <laughs> God's sake. Mobley took a trip to Paris to visit Jordan, who had an apartment in the city. And on August the 10th, 1901, the two women decided to take a side trip to tour the Palace of Versailles. After the tour was over, the pair were sitting in the Hall of Mirrors, and with time to spare, Mobley suggested that they visit the Petit Trianon. Which is the little... The little chateau. The little chateau. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On their way, however, they got lost. Because I don't know if you've ever been to the Palace, Palace of Versailles, but it is enormous. Uh, I know it's big. You could I've put never been like around four it. Four football fields inside the grounds easily. Yeah. Or maybe 40. It's enormous. Anyway, they stopped to ask directions from two men who were dressed in greenish jackets and tricorn hats, who they assumed to be gardeners, because of a wheelbarrow and other tools nearby. And Jordan also saw to her right a cottage. And in the doorway stood a woman passing a water jug to a young girl, both dressed in unusual clothes. The pair continued towards the Trianon on the men's directions, but things soon took an eerie turn, as Jordan later wrote in their book. I began to feel as if I were walking in my sleep. The heavy dreaminess was oppressive. At last we came upon a path crossing ours and saw in front of us a building consisting of some columns roofed in and set back in the trees. Seated on the steps was a man with a heavy black cloak around his shoulders and wearing a slouch hat. At that moment, the eerie feeling which had begun in the garden culminated in a definite impression of something uncanny and fear-inspiring. The man slowly turned his face, which was marked by smallpox. His complexion was very dark. The expression was very evil and yet unseeing. I felt a repugnance to going past him. Just then, another man, speaking in a strange accent, came running up behind them and, and hurriedly told them the path to take to the Trianon, which led away from the man they feared. After walking on a bit more, they found the chateau at last. On its north side terrace, Mobley observed a pretty woman with fluffy blonde hair and a shady hat sketching. I thought she was a tourist, Mobley later wrote, but that her dress was old-fashioned and rather unusual. In its low-cutness. And frankly, a bit slutty. <laughs> 
But Mary Antoinette had a massive bouffant hairdo, didn't she? Wasn't that she the one that started it with three feet high hairdo? Always wigs in those days. Yes, even the merkin. I looked straight at her, but some indescribable feeling made me turn away, annoyed at her being there. Mobley and Jourdain walked up to the terrace and were guided by a boy to the front drive. Then their foray into the past ended. It would be a week before they spoke to each other of the unusual events of that day. At first, they agreed that the Petit Trianon must be haunted, but they eventually decided that these weren't any ordinary apparitions. Three months after their tour of Versailles, Jourdain was preparing a class lesson on the French Revolution when she learned that on August 10th, 1792, 109 years to the day before Mobile and Jourdain's encounter at Petit Trianon, the Tuileries... Oh, God, these French bloody words. The Tuileries Palace had been besieged and burned by the Paris Commune. The royal family, including the Queen, were forced into the Hall of Assembly, where they were taken prisoner for th- uh, three days later. The monarchy would be officially abolished the following month, and Marie Antoinette was executed on October 16th, 1793. By guillotine. Which you seem to have some kind of predilection for. Now I'm just saying it's my association with the French Revolution, guillotine. Well, well, they invented it specifically for that purpose. Did they? Off with the head. Is that right? Yeah. Well, think It was the... invented to get rid of the aristocracy during the French Revolution think... so they didn't have to have someone use a sword. Think of the word, guillotine. Well, I know it sounds a bit Frenchy, but... It is very Frenchy, and it was called Madame la guillotine. Oh, really? Now, I have to ask a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, with all of the episodes we've done up to now, at any opportunity you've jumped on to do a accent or speak in an accent, why did you refrain from a French lady accent? I have not got there yet, monsieur. <laughs> That's pretty it is, good. It is not for too a late. French lady <laughs> accent. So hang on a second. These two birds in 1901, mm. they reckon they went through some sort of time warp slip, as you described well, it. As I say, and first ended of up all, 109 years earlier to witness Mary Antoinette's last day at the uh, Palace of Versailles. More or less. They first, as I say, they first thought it was a haunting. When they learned the date that she was executed and they they sort of concluded that what they had actually walked into was a vivid memory that the Queen had conjured during the burning of the Tuileries in 1792, picturing her last peaceful moments at the Petit Trianon. And it wouldn't be until 10 years later, in 1911, that Mobley and Jourdain published the adventure under the pseudonyms Elizabeth Morrison and Frances Lamont respectively uh so hang on a second they couldn't have written a book about this one episode or did they must have been a pretty short book well no bear in mind they're both academics ah so they were able to string it out for a whole book's worth i could talk about five minutes worth of content for an hour i think what two learned professor types could do (laughs) that's right (laughs) so these were two academics and we're sorry, was this the conclusion they came to in their book? Well, they, that they had witnessed a time slip, a slip in time, a crack in time. They set out to bolster their supernatural claims in true academic fashion by combing uh-huh. through the French National Archives and extensively researching French history. Yeah. They compared maps of the Versailles grounds from 1789 and 1901, analysed the clothing and made several return visits in an attempt to prove 
that the Versailles they experienced was that of the 18th century rather than the 20th. They concluded that the two gardeners in green were members of the Queen's Swiss Guard. The scary man was Comte de Vaudreuil, who played a role in betraying the Queen. No, I want that one again. The Comte de Vaudreuil? Comte de Vaudreuil. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably pronounced perfectly. Um, The pretty woman in the shady hat was Marie Antoinette herself. And the running man was the page who informed her of the mob. Now, the book was widely popular, being reprinted multiple times in its first year, selling 11,000 copies and going through five editions. But along with its popularity came much criticism. Some claimed that Moberly and Jourdain's account was overly embellished and not the work of anything supernatural, pointing to inconsistencies between early accounts that the pair had sent to the Society of Psychical Research in the book. Other criticisms of the book and the two women were, however, of a more personal nature. Oh dear. Their identities... Together, were they? Their identities as the authors was an open secret since the women had shared their experiences with family, friends and colleagues, and the third edition also used their real names. Being two unmarried, childless women past the usual age for matrimony, some sources say they also lived together, and that also raised many eyebrows in the first part of the 20th century. Their lack of conformity to the era's expectation for women fed many alternative theories surrounding the encounter. Lucille Ironmonger, that's a great name. Ironmonger? No, Ire. Ironmonger. No, not Iron. Ire. No, Ire. Ire. Ironmonger. A student at St. Hugh's and a descendant of the Comte de Vaudreuil <laughs> wrote a scathing and homophobic description of the incident in her book, The Ghosts of Versailles. She speculated that the two women were romantically involved and suggested that their tale was in part as a result of the sexual deviancy. That, what? <laughs> sexual deviancy <laughs> causes... Hallucination of the ghost kind. <laughs> the paranormal encounter of this spectral kind. <laughs> oh dear. Have you got photographs to post on the thing? We can check. I have, and I always forget to do it, so... Oh, God. We'll see. I'll see if I can get Kate the Crim to do it. Note to Kate, do that. Yeah. I didn't think they had a, a lesbians in those days. I think that's. I thought that was a reasonably recent invention. Yes, but you think most things weren't invented until you were born. <laughs> For some reason, <laughs> like life began with Mark. <laughs> Maybe. All right, so these two girls or women, they actually wrote a book. They got reprinted three times. Five. Five times. So it was obviously quite popular. Well, do you know, remember what it was called? I told oh, the you adventures. What it was the adventure. That was it. Yeah. The adventure. Bear in mind, it was the early days of printing, so most of the best tiles hadn't been used yet. <laughs> <laughs> you could, you could probably have the good book. <laughs> exactly. It's pretty generic, isn't it? The adventure. Now, other writers argue that Moberly and Jourdain did witness something out of the ordinary. But it had nothing to do with ghosts or time slips. In another book, it was speculated that the women had stumbled onto a historical tableau vivant, or a fancy dress party. Yes, exactly. I was just about to say, maybe they employed people 
it was like a, a living theatre of characters out of the past. It could have been a bit like um, an early Disney world. Exactly. That makes a lot of sense. It, w- it would, except for the fact that the buildings that they saw didn't exist in their present day. Ah. It's not just the people. It's the grounds, yeah. it's the layout of the grounds. I think lesbians are known to take hallucinogenic drugs, aren't they? Sorry, did did you... (laughs) What did you just say about lesbians? I thought they were known to take hallucinogenic (laughs) drugs. I thought that was one of the side effects of being a lesbian. (laughs) They take a lot of LSD. In that case, I I need to join lesbians. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. There's two reasons I need to be a lesbian now. <laughs> All right, so there weren't any hallucinogenic drugs involved as far as we know. Not as far as we know. Now, the guards were either other party goers, and the queen was either a woman of the Montecascu, who they claim it's party it was, a close circle, or a man dressed in drag. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> They definitely didn't have that in those days. Oh, excuse me. They certainly did. In um, 1901? You know that in Soho, and I'm sure when we do our special edition episodes, you'll be enlightened about Soho. Even as early as the First World War, there were gentlemen's clubs which catered purely for the cross-dresser. Yeah, but that was 1916, 1914, Oh, oh that was 15 years later. That was much more progressive. Yeah, you're probably right, actually, thinking about all those Greeks and such like. They've been doing it for a long time. Oh, God, that's lesbians and Greeks. You've just turned against us. <laughs> no, I didn't say anything derogatory about lesbians at all. I just said they had a... <laughs> not <laughs> predilection. What's it called? <laughs> a preference for <laughs> mind-changing drugs. Based on my vast experience of dealing with lesbians... Anyway, the idea, right. the idea was that as two English spinsters... Mobley, they were English? Well, one of them was. Uh, Moberly and Jourdain might have been so unfamiliar with such parties that they conjured hallucinations instead of understanding their surroundings. That's right. They probably had a case of... The jitters. No, no what's it women got? <laughs> Hysteria. No. Come on, what do I always say? Oh, I do believe I'm suffering from the vapours. Oh, the vapours. I don't even know what that means. You don't suffer from the vapours. Oh, I'm overcome with the vapours. God, In other words, what they were saying was Mobley and Jourdain were so gay that they hallucinated the event, or so prudishly straight that they hallucinated it. But they managed to sell five editions of this book. That was only 11,000 copies, which is still pretty substantial. Well, yeah, but in 1901, I reckon that was definitely on the bestseller list. Uh, Dame Joan Evans, who was a historian and a former student at St. Hughes, where they taught, these ladies, obtained the copyright to the adventure as Jourdain's literary executor and accepted Julianne's explanation of the events, suspending printing after the fifth edition in 1955. What? It was in print until 1955? Yeah. I want to try and get a copy of this book. No, you can't. It's not in print anymore. Well, you must be able to. Amazon, that company I don't do business with. Mobley and Jourdain, however, never retracted their stories. In 1924, Jourdain became embroiled in a scandal. 
Oh dear. At St. Hugh's after wrongfully firing a tutor. It was clear she would be asked to resign by the college council, but she died of heart failure at the age of 61 before they could do so. Moberly died in 1937 at the age of 90, still telling the story of her adventure at Versailles to those who would listen. Hang on a second, I've got to do some maths here. She was 90 in 1937. She was. So she was 53 she was in the, 1901. She was, she was the head of a department at Oxford when this happened. Really? So, yes, yeah, she would be fit in her 50s or 60s. So you can get middle-aged lesbians as well. They don't all have to be young. Oh, my God, our mailbox is going to be going ding, 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 ding. <laughs> in our dreams. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> never happened. <laughs> we could literally say what we want on this podcast and not get any response whatsoever. So um, that was that was a story of the two ladies of Versailles. And I don't know, you're not convinced that was a time slip? You think that was a fancy dress party? It could have been. I mean, the fact they were academics leads a bit of credence to the story. But 1901, yeah, it could have been a precluder to uh, to Disney World Paris. OK, well, let's go to England. Oh, dear. In the year of our Brian, 1957. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. Uh, you would have been around about 32, 33 at this point. So what happened there? I don't know. Oh dear, maybe they're trying to communicate with us. I think you, you did go in a time slip. Did you? Did you feel anything in your bottom? <laughs> Nothing in my bottom. <laughs> Could have been. There's probed. always hope. Could have been proud without your knowledge. Exactly. Trevor paid me a visit while I wasn't watching. So, All right. So hang on a second. You've got another one of these time slip stories. Oh, I've got. A, I've got a few more to go through. A few. Yes. Yes, there's much anecdotal evidence. Is that what that film is about? That, um, no, it's not, is it? What's that sort of supernatural movie where they, where the whole world is a, is a construction? Oh, there's lots of films like that. No, there's a series of them. The, the big one. Inception? No, that's not a big one. Even bigger than that. There was about five sequels. Oh, The Matrix. The Matrix, thank you. That's not what we're talking about, not is it? Really, no, no, no. no. No, sorry, got confused. No, that's um, that's something completely different, which we might go into. That is that is the fact that we live in a simulation, which we have sort of half talked about. Yeah, well, there's no doubting that you live in a simulation, Andy, but I think you're alone in that regard. Well, if I am alone in my simulation, I am a god. <laughs> yes, exactly, <laughs> of your own little kingdom. Anyway, back to the village of Kersey in Suffolk. Uh, don't know it. In the year of O'Brien, 1957. Three young British sea cadets, or Royal Navy cadets, William Lang, Michael Crowley and Ray Baker, were performing a routine map reading exercise. And the idea of the exercise is quite simple. They were supposed to walk across a few miles of countryside and then report what they had seen to their superiors. Are you sure they weren't in the army? No, we did orienteering in the sea cadets as well. What do you mean, we? I was a sea cadet. What? I was indeed. What rank did they give you? I got up to leading seaman. That's the stuff that comes out first. (laughs) Leading seaman. I was. Oh, dear. Did you you start a uniform? Yeah, of course. And a cat. Lovely in my sailor's uniform. I was was delicious. I think you've told me before, actually, that you were a sea cadet. You never went to sea, though, did you? Of course you? I did. 
What? You actually got out on the water? Yes. I'm quite experienced in sailing. Yeah, in your dreams. You know, when I was in my 20s, me and nine other people chartered a racing yacht and we went from... Well, we flew to Gibraltar. Um, we went from Gibraltar across to Ceta in Spain and then across to Morocco, North Africa and all around all around the coast there. In a sailing boat? A racing yacht. Really? Yep. Very, very tight quarters because it's 57 feet, I think, or, or 39 feet. I can't remember. It was a sun well, ten, 10 metres is a 30 footer. It was a, it was a sun seeker. Sunseeker don't make racing yachts, they make they gin do. palaces. No, 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 honestly, you can check it out later. It was a very fantastic experience. I bet it wasn't, it had nothing to do with the sailing. I remember standing on the deck. I don't think I want to hear you um, and nine of your male friends. No, there was just me on the deck, everyone else was downstairs, I was sleeping or drinking. Standing there just in a pair of shorts with me Sony Walkman. Listening to Seal and watching a school of dolphins following our boat. It was just unbelievably beautiful. And was the uh, the moment enhanced with some... Alcohol. Alcohol, yeah, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> there was quite a lot of drink sailing going on. <laughs> good, good. Anyway. anyway, what's that got to do with our story? Oh, these were sea, sea cadets. Yeah, walking across the field. Anyway, as they traversed across rural Suffolk in England, they saw the picturesque village of Kersey in the distance and its church bells were ringing for a religious service. Yet, as the three descended into the village, a miasma of stillness and quiet engulfed them. There were no church... You have church to explain the word miasma to me. Like a totality. All-encompassing. A totality. Yeah, all yeah. There were no church bells ringing. In fact, there were hardly any signs of life at all. The cadets reported there were no people, only some ducks splashing quite noiselessly in a nearby stream. Not only that, they claimed that the trees in the village were all verdant green as though it was spring or summer, despite it being in the autumn. They afterwards described the village as being almost medieval in appearance. There were no wires overhanging the streets and not a car in sight. And as this was 1957, there should have been some. They claimed that the houses all looked to be hand-built, timber-framed, with the most modern thing about them being glass windows. Strangest things of all, however, was that the cadets could no longer see the church's tower, which they had definitely seen from a distance and is a bit of a hallmark of the village of Kersey to this day. Now, whilst wandering around the eerily quiet streets of Kersey, the cadets supposedly peered in through the windows of what they assumed to be a butcher's shop. They could see two or three skinned oxen carcasses hanging inside, but they were green and rotting. Oh dear, that's not good for a butcher. And this led the cadets to assume that the proprietors must have vacated the building sometime before. What, and left a couple of hanging carcasses there? Well, they felt uneasy. I'm not surprised. The unnatural stillness of the village was smothering, and so they hurried to leave. Once they were outside the village, it was as though everything had returned to normal. William Lang later explained how suddenly they could hear the bells once more and saw the smoke rising from chimneys. None of the chimneys were smoking while they were in the village. Gripped by what he described as a weird feeling, the three of them ran for a few hundred yards in an attempt to shake it off. And then, being 1957, they probably stopped for a fag. (laughs) 
Wacky Backy. They've been no, on a bit of Wacky Backy. In 1957, they weren't. What do you mean they had Wacky Backy in 57? See, you, you make me laugh. You, th- you claim no lesbians existed pre-Mark, but Wacky Backy <laughs> was all over the place in the 50s, just after the bloody of war. Of course they had Wacky Backy in the 50s and 60s. In the 60s, yes, I would say it was widespread, but 1957, amongst sea Really? So was... they didn't smoke joints in the Second World War? I thought that's what they did. No, they gave them heroin. Heroin, was it? Yeah. Heroin for the soldiers. Get them out of their minds and make them run towards machine gun nests. All right. How else are you going to do it? Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so they're sober-ish. They could have been just drunk, but they even that wouldn't explain it. They were sea cadets. They were probably only half drunk. They only drank shandies. <laughs> they exactly. Were, they weren't on the hard stuff. They probably half had a couple of... shandy, please. They probably had a couple of brown owls. <laughs> Anyway, the experience in Kersey left such a profound effect that decades later, in 1990, Lang flew to England from his home in Australia to meet up with Andrew McKenzie, who was a a psychical researcher, to investigate the matter further. McKenzie was extremely interested in Lang's testimony, and together they returned to the village of Kersey to retrace the events. And Mackenzie's research revealed that the building the three cadets had seen as a butcher's shop had not been involved in that trade in 1957. However, records exist to show that the building was registered as a butcher's shop from 1790 until 1905, at which point it became a general store. And whilst the documentation is lacking, Mackenzie has stated there is evidence to suggest that the building was associated with the butcher's trade for a much longer time, perhaps even to the time of its initial construction in 1350. And when was the church built, which disappeared when they visited? We're coming to that. Ah, I'm sorry. Now, how could the cadets possibly have known that information? It could be argued that this revelation helped support the possibility that Lang, Crowley and Baker experienced a time slip and stepped back in time to that day in Kersey. In the years since the peculiar incident, many have criticised them for having an overactive imagination. Others have scoffed that the boys simply misinterpreted the genuinely old appearance of the village for something otherworldly. After all, it was a Sunday morning when they came across the village. Local residents may still have been at home or at church rather than outside on the street. Yet, how could they see a butcher's shop in a building that hadn't been a butcher's shop in at least 50 years? Now, Mm. the other puzzle, as alluded to by your good self... Unable to be resolved by simple dismissal of the case is why the cadets could not see the tower of the church from within the village. The oldest parts of St Mary's in Kersey date to the 12th century, with the tower having been finished in 1481. It's a protected historical building. The church would certainly have been visible from both outside and inside the village in 1957. Mackenzie believes... The enigma of the church's tower is one of the strongest pieces of evidence for the cadets either having visited or had an intense vision of a past time. Now, as the construction of the church was halted around the middle of the 14th century because half the population was obliterated by the Black Death... Oh no, that's not nice, the Black Death. Mackenzie has stated that this provides a clue as to when in time the young men may have visited. Furthermore, he has speculated that the glass windows they reported seeing in the houses would have been indicative of a degree of opulence in the town. He's claimed that it was around the 1420s that Kersey had become wealthy from the wool trade. And, since the church's tower was not complete then, has assigned this decade as one of the most likely time periods that the cadets visited. For all this, many have criticised both the original event and Mackenzie's explanations. 
Skeptics have argued it would be improbable for a village of Kersey's size to have had a butcher's shop in the 15th century, as meat was a luxury product that was primarily dealt with in towns or at visiting weekly markets. This, however, can be said to be just as speculative as Mackenzie's remarks and does nothing to address the cadet's reported sense of unease at being in a place which seemed far removed from expected reality. So ultimately, the Kersey case is a mystery which still endures with no explanation yet able to answer definitively what happened on that day in 1957. So they were still there walking around in the 1990s, these people? Yeah. All right. Well, that's quite an interesting one. So, sorry, what was the date that they reckon they went back to then? Around about 14... Something. 30, possibly. All right. That would have been more of a shock for the people who were around in 1400s to bump into three people dressed as uh, Navy cadets. Uh, Yeah, they would have probably been mistaken for a press gang. Ah, yes, press gangs, that's right. Anyway, before we go any further... And now, a word from our sponsors. (sighs) (laughs) Didn't want to forget it this week. So now we're coming even closer to home. In Sweden. In Liverpool. Oh, that's not closer to home. But Well, it is, technically. We're going to move to 1996. Ooh, closer in time. Now, there is a, a, a part of Liverpool called Bold Street, which is not far from Central Station. Have you ever been there? I have. Have you? Yeah. Been You've to been to Bold Street in Liverpool. Well, Liverpool city centre isn't that big. If you've been to Liverpool Central Station, you've probably been to Bold Street. Never been there. Oh, Liverpool's Never been fantastic. to Manchester. Yeah, well, Bold Street in Liverpool has been associated with time slips for decades. What? Yep, with many people having testified that this bustling shop-lined high street contains a passageway to the past. And one of the earliest known accounts is said to date back to 1996, when Frank, a retired police officer from Merseyside, went shopping with his wife Carol. It was a sunny Saturday afternoon and the pair had agreed to split up. Frank wanted to look for a new CD at a music shop and Carol wanted to go to Waterstone's bookshop on Bold Street. Frank agreed to meet his wife at the bookshop, and so, after finishing at the music shop, which I'm going to guess was probably a HMV in those days, yeah, 96, walked, walked into Bold Street, and upon passing the Lyceum, a 19th century neoclassical building which marks the entrance of the road, Frank claimed to have felt a peculiar sensation. Everything went strangely quiet. Before he had a chance to ponder this change any further, a small box van honked its horn and skidded around Frank, narrowly missing him. The police officer claimed that the van looked as though it belonged in the 50s and it had the name Kaplan's or Kaplin's, depending on the variant of the story, stenciled on its side. Confused, Frank stepped out of the road and headed in the direction of Waterstones. As he got closer, however, he saw that the name Crips hung above the shop and that rather than displaying books, the windows were lined with women's handbags and shoes. According to the police officer's story, it was then that he looked around and realised that the people in the street were dressed rather strangely, seemingly wearing clothing from the 40s and 50s. One person, a young woman in her 20s, stood out from the rest. She was dressed in a lime-coloured sleeveless top and carried a handbag that Frank recognised as a popular modern-day brand. They smiled at each other as she passed him and headed into Crips. As he followed her inside, the interior of the shop suddenly changed. Gone were the handbags and shoes, and in its place were the bookshelves laden with paperbacks. Frank turned to the young woman, who seemed to be equally confused. 
When he asked her if she had seen what he said, she said yes and explained that she had thought it was a new clothes shop and had been surprised to find the building full of books. Befuddled, Frank found his wife and went home, unable to shake his experience. Later, he found out that a local business called Kaplan's did once exist and that the bookshop he agreed to meet his wife in used to be a ladies' shawl shop called Crips. That seems a bit spooky. It's not the only story from Bold Street. There have been many other reports from Bold Street, including one from a shoplifter called Sean. Now, shoplifting is absolutely a legitimate career choice in Liverpool. (laughs) That is. I'll tell you what, you're worried about my lesbian joke comments and you managed to offend any Liverpudlians that may have been listening. No, that is not offensive. Let me tell you, the best thing... (laughs) It is to them. No, they're proud of their shoplifting heritage. (laughs) You could go you go to any pub in Liverpool on a Sunday afternoon. You can sit there, you can order your Sunday dinner and you can have a few pints. And while you're eating, you will be treated to a parade of shoplifters with an array of goods from jeans to razor blades, aftershaves, alcohol, anything you could think of. And they'll even take orders. And you can sit there quite happily shopping on a Sunday afternoon in the pub, buying whatever it is that you want. It's incredible. You're not going to tell me they're all dressed in Adidas tracksuits, sporting moustaches, are you? Well, in fact, they were in those days. <laughs> this was the 90s, after all. What do they say? In, aye, aye. Now, what do they say in Liverpool? Now then, now then. Now then, now then, exactly. Scylla Black, if she came from Liverpool. Now then, kiddala. Anyway, while Sean was running away from a security guard in 2006... He claimed to have been transported back to 1967. When he was interviewed by a journalist after his experience, Sean stated that he felt a sensation of tightness in his chest before realising that his surroundings had changed. Roadworks that he knew were there were gone and people were dressed oddly. At a newspaper kiosk, Sean claimed to have seen an edition of the Daily Post dated Thursday 18th of May 1967. Now while it's easy to dismiss individual claims... As Sean's, because apart from being a a shoplifter, he was also a known drug abuser. (laughs) The security guard backed up his story, saying he was just a few seconds behind Sean when he turned into a blind alley and Sean was basically not there and there was nowhere for him to disappear to. I wonder what triggers these time slips. It could be anything. I mean, it it could be a, a time and a place or it could be a phase of the moon, or it could be a state of mind. It could be that you're feeling particularly susceptible. But um, because if you're th- if you think about time rather than as a linear thing, as like ripples on a pond, and all these existences are, are side by side, so that there are several realities operating at the same time, then it would be possible to slip from one to another quite easily when the fabric of time and space between them is stretched at their thinnest. You've been reading too much. What's his name but the thing is what i wonder why people or maybe they have i wonder why people haven't focused doing a bit of research on broad street in liverpool well here's the thing they have ah and what did they discover one of the theories about bold street is that the city's underground railway system is very close the central power supply to that is very close to bold street so it's electromagnetic forces that are screwing everything up. Well, there is there is also a theory that um, Tesla had, in fact, invented a form of time machine, which was uh, one of the things that was disappeared after his death, along with a lot of other papers appertaining to his inventions. 
Sorry, Tesla. Yeah. We've spoken about him before, haven't we? Yes. All right. So, sorry, we suspect that he was able to do he, time travel. He, he was said to have um, had designs for a time travel machine and a weapon of unimaginable power, both of the which designs disappeared after his death, along with many, many other designs. All right. And sorry, what was his connection to uh, Board Street or Broad Street? Well, Bold they're, Street? They, were, they were just saying that the, the, the conjunction of the power supply for the underground oh, yes. system yep. could actually have triggered some kind of time lapse. All right. Might have something to do with the creation of a portal. Rather eerily, people who worked and resided in Bold Street in the 60s, the decade which many people claim to have slipped back to, agreed that something was not quite right on their road. When Chris Gibson, the founder of the community and construction project Future Liverpool, went down into the cellar of one of Bold Street's shops with a colleague in 2010, they were disturbed to find several unsettling messages written on the wall. One, which was dated February 1966, read, God have mercy on all who enter here. And another, Uh dated three years later, confirmed the first warning, saying, it's no joke. Gibson also reported hearing bizarre noises coming from within the room, including a low buzzing sound mixed with a sort of clattering. I think I want to go to this bold street. Indeed. Is it full of curry shops these days? Not anymore, I would imagine. After Boris Johnson has decimated the small businessmen and shut down bars and venues in every city in the country. Hopefully the curry shops will survive. One of the few businesses that would, probably. But anyway, that brings us to the end of our time slip episode. It's quite interesting. I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of believable. It's a bit Stephen Hawkins-esque, you know, when you start talking about ripples and ribbons and God knows what else. But I wonder why we haven't, with all of these science that we've got, why we haven't learned to be able to tap into these things. Well, if we could, the government wouldn't let you... (laughs) Too much fun, you mean? They would tax you. Hang on, hang on. What do you mean you're going off to the 1960s and buying cheap meat? We can't have that. I could tell. I could give. I'll give you one more quick story about Bold Street. There was a young girl called Imogen, and she decided to go into Liverpool to buy her sister Abigail a few things for a new baby. And upon arriving, she was happy to see a new mother care store that had opened up on the corner of Lord Street and Whitechapel, just around the corner from Bold Street. She wandered around the store. And she picked up a few baby items, such as cardigans, bibs and gloves, and she was surprised to see how cheap the items were, but thought they were on offer since the store had just opened. Taking them to the counter, she tried to pay with her credit card. The staff member looked at her suspiciously and went off to get the manager. When she came back, she looked at the card and told Imogen that they didn't take cards. Disappointed, Imogen went and put the items back as she didn't have any cash on her. When she got home, she told her mother what had happened and her mother was surprised and puzzled. That store closed years ago, she said. There's a bank there now. In fact, I've got an account there. Not believing her, Imogen took her mother back to the same place the next day. Sure enough, the store wasn't there. It was a bank, just as her mother had told her. Maybe, uh... Maybe the, the centre of Liverpool it, is a hotspot for mind-altering drug participation. Or she had the vapours. Or she had the vapours. There's a lot of it about in the time-travelling world. I wouldn't mind doing a bit of time travel. I don't know where I'd want to go, though. When I'd want to go. To when. I know where you you want to go back to the 1600s because you reckon you'd be some sort of king. <laughs> I would be a god. <laughs> As opposed to some sort of surf, which is the reality of the situation you'd find yourself in. With the knowledge I have, I would... <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd be in stocks in seconds and slated for the guillotine or the hangman's noose by the end of sunset the next day. Oh, it's quite interesting, though. It's sort of, yeah, sort of believer bubble. I think I I like the idea of time slips, and I I want to believe in them, which helps. And I I think they must exist because when you think of some of the literature that's been written and some of the ideas that have been posited in in either science fiction or in even in um, historical based fiction, you think how would you think something like that up? Maybe. You mean like something like uh, Orwell's 84, 1984? Yeah, I mean... How could he have been so insightful? So accurate. Yes. How could he have seen so many so many elements of the world and, and like Star- as it is today? And, and programmes like Star Trek, where they basically told you about mobile phones, 3D printing. Beam me up, Scotty. Yeah, it's, it's not long coming. Well, I wonder who wrote Star Trek. That was a room full of writers, wasn't it? Well, or was it based on a concept of a writer? Gene Roddenberry, wasn't it? Ah, yes. Now I remember his name appearing on the screen. Could have been. Anyway, so that's, yeah, that's a good one, actually, Andy, because it's, it's sort of almost believable, certainly better than bloody Hollow Earth nonsense. Oh, you don't like Hollow Earth at all, do you? Um, it's not I don't like it. It's, uh, it's a matter of these stories having at least an element of believability. You'll be like those poor people when the day of revelation comes. The truth comes out. You're all standing outside the gates of heaven and you'll look over someone's shoulder and go, Fuck me, don't tell me the Jehovah's were right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, dear. Hollow, Hollow Earth is one of my favourites. We don't see many Jehovah's Witnesses these days. I think we're a bit too far spread out now for them. They like they like urban areas where they can scattergun approach. They can hit hundreds of thousands of people and maybe get a couple of hits. Uh, though, funny enough, in the pandemic, they started phoning. I've had at least two or three... Really? Calls. Yes. That's yeah, illegal no. in this country. No, it's not. They're either. not allowed. To, no one's allowed to phone you from a business or a company unless you have an account with them or you have expressly given them permission. And I would say the Jehovah's Witnesses are a company. A business. Well, maybe. But how? Oh, how can they get you on the phone? Do they? Do, they when you they, answer, they do they say good news? No, I mean I think that's literally the approach. Have you got two minutes to talk about Jesus or something? Oh. I think they believe in Jesus, don't they? The uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, I think there's Jesus in there somewhere. I'm, I've never spoken to one in long enough to find out. They were always knocking on my door in Camden. Camden? Yeah. Well, you were lucky it wasn't the Harry Krishnas. Do you remember the Harry Krishnas? No, they never knocked on your door. They used no, to but just, they were always... They were dancing up and down Camden High Street all the time. up and down the street. Oh, all the time in, in Camden Town. Yeah. Oh, they'd never forget the sound of fucking cymbals. <laughs> exactly. Hare, Hare Krishna, Hare. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it would have been easy to join them because it's not like it was complicated learning the song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but all, you had to give up all your worldly goods, didn't you, to join up? Yeah, but they had, they had plus points. They had, um, <laughs> no, they did. They, they had one what of their beliefs. The plus points of the Hare Krishnas. One of their beliefs was free love. You only had a certain amount of sexual lust inside you, and it was in everybody's interest that you got it out as quickly as possible. Bollocks. So no, it's absolutely true. So they used to fuck like rabbits. That's a it's, Camden Town version of the Hare Krishnas. You must understand 
that these things happen. This is how cults are successful. They get, it's a, it's a reward they system. They offer free limitless sex. It's a reward system. They they appeal to your baser instincts to get you to give up control of your life and your wealth. Are they still around? Harry Krishnas are they still I don't you I, don't I, see them on Oxford Street yeah, anymore. No, but I would imagine they're still there. They've actually it's like the Scientologists they used to have a place on Tottenham Court Road, didn't they? And they were standing outside with their uh, surveys. Would you like to take a quick personality test? Is that what they said? Yeah. Uh, funnily enough, now I think about it, I reckon there's a Harry Krishna house just on the Westway outside of North Holt, Uxbridge. Quite probably. A really big meeting place, you know, where Orgy hun- house. thousands of people go for their Orgy festivals. Orgy house, we call it. Woogie House. Orgy House. Orgy House, yeah, maybe. Oh, oh, Mr. Krishna, I've got a bit of sex inside me. Uh, Need to work it out. (laughs) The um, bag one as well, do you remember? That's it, that's the one. No, 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 no. that's what is in Uxbridge, it's the bag one-y. Yeah, his his sect was also very sexually orientated. That's right. Uh, that's usually, right. He was the one usually with 14 Rolls Royces or 140 Rolls Royces or something. yeah. Unbelievable. Anyway, I'm going to have to think a bit more about this time slip malarkey. Well, it bears thinking about. It's quite an interesting subject. And as I I do want it to be true, and I would like to experience it. Yeah, but where would you go? You'd have to go back to ancient Rome. No, I'd go back to... Check out a bit of Bodicea. No, I'd go back to last week and get the lottery numbers. Yeah, well, that's the that's what you'd think about, isn't it? So you've got the opportunity to do time travel and all you think about is getting the lottery numbers. Well, yeah. yeah I don't well, know if I'm going precisely. to have to. Well, what else? What am I going to do? Go back and say, excuse me, you'll never guess what? I'm from the future. Well, that would be more satisfying than winning the lottery, I can guarantee you. Especially Bonacia when you end up in a mental house. I was thinking of ancient, um, what did I say? Ancient Helen of Greece. Troy? No, who was the, um, Liz Taylor played her. Cleopatra? Cleopatra, thank you. That was sort of Egypt, but... Egypt, yeah, exactly. That's the one I was thinking of. Now, that would be interesting to go to, to check out a bit of Cleopatra activity. She would have killed you. No, no, she'd be interested in what I have to tell her. Oh, absolutely. Oh, my God. You you would be treated like a god. Uh, Not for very long. Only until your usefulness had run out. All those maidens that would be buried with you, Andy... Uh, yeah, it's the buried with you bit that I've got a problem with. <laughs> <laughs> the maidens I can handle is the burial bit. What, you wouldn't like a monument to your death in the form of some I sort of pyramid wish, activity? Not if it means my death is happening tomorrow, no. I want to enjoy my maidens. Time slip. I might even Google that later when I, when I can't get to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> because you're too busy fapping off to Cleopatra. <laughs> What is that? That's not a word. Of course it's a word. I said it. Fapping off. (laughs) Anyway. Oh, dear. Check out our website, www.strangestuffpodcast.com, where you can find links to all our socials. And for God's sake, send us something, like something, make a comment. I'm not sure if we're actually talking to anyone out there except me and him. Him? Him over there on my computer. Yeah, no, good story though, Andy, that one. I like the idea of time slip. Yep, hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, join us again next week for another highly believable and very entertaining story. In the meantime, have a strange Are we coming week. up for our summer break? Don't we need to give people a bit of warning in advance? We're having a two-week break. 
Well, you've done it now, haven't you? Uh, I can't remember. What, what? When is that? That's the end of July, beginning of August. Well, OK, now you've said it. I suppose we'll have to announce it. <laughs> well, it's not the end of the world. I think people will be able to cope without two weeks of podcast. Well, the 19th of July is going to be our first anniversary because our first ever podcast was released on the 19th of July last year. And to sort of celebrate our one-year anniversary, Mark and I are going to have two weeks off. Good idea. It is... uh, This sounds so lame. It is quite exhausting doing this every week. (laughs) You're telling me, (laughs) listening to you talking for an hour. I don't know about Mark, but I think over the last year, my IQ has probably gone down by (laughs) (laughs) 4.3%. Yeah. Now you're knocking on the 60s and you're getting a bit worried. Used to be up in the 80s and now you're knocking on the 60s. But fear not, we will return stronger than ever, even if more stupid. And while we are having our little sabbatical, we will actually be recording an episode or two of a special series which will be released separately. So you could be getting two episodes a week sometimes. What? Yeah, Bloody Mark doesn't far. even know about this. No, bit. exactly. I'm getting a bit concerned now. Am I involved in this production? You are. Even if it's just arm candy. <laughs> arm candy? What is, what's that? What's, what's arm candy as opposed to eye candy? Well, you know, that's the one you turn up with on your arm. Ah, yes. Yeah, all right, okay. Yeah. So, as I was saying, have a strange week. Yeah. And if you do happen to go into a time slip, buy me a lottery ticket with this week's numbers. Please, um, just email it to this address. Strange stuff podcast at gmail.com. Attention, Andy, rich bastard. <laughs> anyway, see you next week. <laughs>